You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, let's begin. Welcome, everyone. We've got an um, exclusive cl- crowd tonight, so feel free to huddle in. And there is a bar tab, so make the most of it. I think at this rate you could all get at least five drinks each. So, <laughs> um, so let's begin, and we're going to begin with an acknowledgement of country. So we acknowledge the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. So we are here tonight um, supported by the Naomi Milgram Foundation who um, is behind the beautiful M Pavilion. And um, the foundation sponsored a prize by the City of Melbourne that um, Architectus and the State Library were thrilled to receive last year was the Urban Design Award. And as part of that, we get to come here and um, talk about something for an hour. And when we got our heads together, we thought, let's talk about public spaces, public architecture, but let's also um, reflect on the theme of April in M Pavilion, which is, and I'll read it out, Um, In April, themes revolve around the time on our minds, its poignancy, its intangibility, the time that has been disrupted and the time that has been reclaimed, which I think for Melburnians, we know what that means. And so that it's with that COVID lens that we're also going to talk about um, public, the public and public spaces and public design. So the panel tonight, Kate Tawney, CEO of Peter McCallum Foundation, Claire from, uh, sorry, Claire Martin, <laughs> Associate Director of Oculus, and my colleague, Dr. Stephen Long, um, who's actually from Brisbane, has flown down um, to be here tonight, but um, is originally from Melbourne and knows this precinct because spent most of last year <laughs> designing the um, NGV Contemporary, which was our um Um, entry into that competition. So I'm just going to start um, and ask you each to just talk a little bit about your role and answer the question, um, how do you think about the public in your daily work? Thanks, Ruth. Um, So I've uh, just joined Peter Mac Foundation, previously worked with Ruth and Architectus at the State Library Victoria, where I'm CEO, and um, and oversaw the transformation of the State Library Victoria. And prior to that, I was at the ABC. So my um, background has always been in public service. Uh, and and interestingly, I think my view of the public has evolved in the roles that I've had. My view of the public when I was at the ABC as a journalist and news director 
um, when I, I came to the State Library, I realised um, that my view of the public was pretty narrow uh, walking through the State Library of Victoria. I don't think you'll find a more diverse group of people and that beautiful sense of public where it's a sense of belonging and you can have CEOs and Supreme Court judges, you know, sitting next to VCE students and uh, and people who really need that space who um, otherwise are homeless. Um, so, so that sort of contextualised my sense of public and then moving to Peter Mac, um, again, a, a kind of shift in thinking about the definition of public because you walk through the foyer of Peter Mac where most of the people who are walking through there are having absolutely life-changing experiences or um, experiencing that with a loved one. Um, and so it is that sort of very different sense of, of, of public. And I think, so for me, the definition is evolving. Great. Thank you. And Claire. Um, thanks, Ruth. Um, I would say, so, sorry, I work at Oculus. So Oculus is a landscape architecture and urban design practice and we do projects across a range of scales and sectors. So education, cultural landscapes, public landscapes um, and lots of civic landscapes. And I guess the way that we probably mainly think about public on a daily basis is in terms of the work that we choose to do. So often we will assess the projects that we decide to do on the basis of whether they have public benefit so we do do privately procured projects. We also do publicly procured projects and we do privately procured public projects. So I think for us, as long as there's some sort of public benefit, that's a real measure of whether we'll pursue a project and how we approach a project. Um, I guess to give you an indication of the sort of projects that we've done recently, we've designed the Market Street Park, um, which is the last park for the city of Melbourne and the first park in the CBD since City Square. And we're also designing in collaboration with the City of Melbourne's Seafarers Rest, which will be probably one of the first projects that's implemented as part of the Green Line project. So, Fantastic. And Steve? Yeah, and um, my role as National Sector Lead and uh, Public for Architectus, we work on a range of um, public projects, a range of scale and a range of types of public projects. Um, here in Victoria, I'm joined by Sophie Cleland, who leads our public projects in Victoria and in Sydney, um, Luke Johnson, who's um, closely involved in the Sydney Modern Project. And when we think about project, we're thinking about everyone and anyone. And that's a really interesting design challenge for the public sector because you, don't, you actually really can't closely, or it's often difficult to closely define who's going to be um, using the design um, or the building that you're designing. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, the other interesting thing is the, the clients, because you often find in, in, with, with the public that the clients have been working on this vision and this idea for many, many years before we even joined the project. And so working with people that have that passion and that energy and that commitment um, uh, to a vision is, is, is exciting. And the last thing when I think about public, I think about the instances where people actually feel excluded from um, public buildings and public spaces. Um, either through perception of, of a kind of that they're forbidden from those spaces or, or something about them that actually um, challenges um, their engagement um, with, with a public space. So th there's lots of interesting aspects to the public. Yeah, great. Thank you. And I think that, that thing about finding your place in a public space, I think 
as you said, Kate, the State Library does that in, in such an incredible way. Um, could you reflect on the last two years because you saw what happened at State Library and then in your new role, just what you saw? Yeah, I think um, with uh, the State Library, for those that don't know, we sort of were, you know, we completed the project and then literally three months later uh, it was closed. So that was kind of heartbreaking. Um, and I think, I think when we were thinking through as the pandemic continued, we were thinking through the spaces that with you we had designed and what they would look like and how they would change post-pandemic. And I remember the day that we opened, um, and I think your point about the exclusion factor is such an important one, particularly for a library. Um, the day that we opened, we had, you know, ridiculous limits, but necessary, absolutely. But, you know, I think we probably had under 100 people in the library when usually we'd have 5,000 a day. But the queue of people, um, most uh, were regulars, many were homeless. And if you think about your experience through that pandemic, um, your devices and connectivity was critical to you. Um, in that queue of people, we had a number of people who had lost connectivity because they come to the state library or public libraries to actually get the connectivity that they need. And that's not only just a, a desk, desktop, uh, but for some people with disabilities, that's all sorts of um, uh, technology that the State Library offers that they can't afford to have themselves. So that was really a moment of sort of just really humbling, thinking, you know, you created this space with us, Ruth, that really matters. Um, and that exclusion factor is so important. That was a place that everyone felt that they belonged. And I just, um, when we had a chat before this, <clears throat> you also talked about the different experience for the patients at the VCCC. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Um, you know, I, I got to Peter Mac in November last year um, and we were very much in lockdown and, um, and until recently really have been in lockdown. And you think about that beautiful building, many of you will know that beautiful space um, that was created to be a really spe special pa uh, space for people at you know, their most difficult times. Well, when it was empty, it was a really lonely space too. And I remember my second day I came out and, um, and you know, patients uh, weren't allowed visitors. And if you were having day treatment, you had to come in alone. And I've had cancer. And that would, would have been a pretty awful thing, I imagine. And I came out and I ran into a former colleague who was having treatment. And she was sitting alone waiting for her husband to pick her up and to text her to walk out. And she was the sole person in this amazingly big space. So it is interesting. Um, you know, the, the designers never imagined a pandemic. Um, uh, but it's such a beautiful space, you know, to invest in a space like that um, for people who are going through really challenging times and for the staff there as well who are working in the most extraordinary um, environments. It's, it's a privilege to, to be at Peter Mac. Thank you. I'm just going to um, follow that theme about activation with Claire and Steve, thinking about, um, for example, our city, which is interesting because it's full of people, but sometimes it's not full of people these days and, and it's going to be interesting to see how it pans out with flexible working, whether, you know, Mondays and Fridays are going to be different in the city. So, Claire, as a designer of 
space and place. Have you thought about that and responded to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely coming up in increasingly, especially on projects that do involve architecture, which I think is um, fundamentally probably going to look quite different in terms of some of those spaces. But it, talking more specifically, I guess, around public realm, I think what we've obviously seen is um, people have been forced to stay at home. We've actually seen, though, now increases in who's staying at home. So I think at one point it may have only been 30% of people were able to work at home. And now you may have, I think August last year had 40% of people were working at home. But it's also that more men are working at home and more women are choosing to come into the city. So that always creates an interesting opportunity in terms of, I guess, gender sensitive design and how we might start to, I think, push and advocate more for um, spaces that reflect the diversity of the communities we're designing for. I think we have also seen during this period how valuable public space is. So I think the equitable distribution or lack of equitable distribution of public space is really fundamental. So I think it's really sort of shown where you have, uh, where you really have within 20 minutes of your house, good high quality public ground, then you're going to use that. So I think we've seen that need um, to be foregrounded more than ever before, but the inequity to be a real issue, which obviously is then inextricably linked to health as well. So I think, um, yeah, I think it creates a massive opportunity in particular for landscape architecture, actually. And Steve? I think um, just reflecting on that, it's important to remember that public spaces are in a range of settings, you know, from from Melbourne right through to regional Victoria and even, you know, very small towns all have their own um, public buildings and public spaces. Um, but in terms of activation, I think there are, there's a, you know, we can see that a lot of public institutions are realising that they need to be even more public and so they, they're thinking about ways to um, have or to attract people to facilities, not necessarily to um, attend to the prime function. So, for example, health facilities um, offering other types of spaces and services other than purely health and, and that's an attractor for the general community to... Um, to, to visit those facilities. So it's interesting. It's an interesting way to stitch um, public buildings into the urban context and more broadly or with the community as well. And there's also a shift, I guess, um, the other way of like attracting, there's obviously attracting people to um, public spaces, but also of public services going out into the community. So more decentralised public services, um, even public services going into the home. So they, people have a, a blended mix of um, going into the cities and into public spaces, but also the services coming into their home as well. Thanks. I'm just going to maybe add to that. I mean, I think also in terms of activation, I guess what we've seen is the previous sort of emphasis on hard infrastructures, whereas I think now what Charles Landry would describe as soft infrastructures. So the need to actually more explicitly program, which is something that I think we don't invest in as much in. So I think we spend phenomenal amounts, in particular in the arts and creative communities, on hard infrastructure, and we need to actually start to do that more community-focused um, kind of infrastructure as well, which I think is critical. Great. So <clears throat> some good um, thoughts there on diversity and, I guess, the range of people that we all design for and cater for. Um, if we look at the last two years and we look at the kind of statistics that have been quoted uh, in many forums about the impact on mental health, um, Steve, I might start the other way around, start with you. Um, how do you think that 
place and space could, can, should be supportive of people's well-being holistically? Um, as I sort of touched on before, you know, you think about Victoria and, and all of the public buildings, you know, clubs, um, places of worship, all the public spaces across Victoria, and you think about the importance of those spaces to people's lives and personal identity, um, that no doubt they have an influence on um, um, people's uh, well-being. Um, but just from a design um, perspective, you know, when we were designing the Sunshine Coast University Hospital, um, we considered well-being through landscape. So um, there was a perception that the Sunshine Coast itself uh, had an innate um, healing quality or had an innate uh, way of um, assisting people's well-being and we wanted to capture that in the design. So landscape became the structuring element um, to that project and in particular a, a spine that ran through the project which is three to four hundred metres long which was an open landscaped um, spine. So through design we can um, influence well-being and I think um, the integration of landscape and, or blending of landscape architecture and architecture is, is a key to that. And you had a great example of also the inclusivity of um, First Nations traditions and practices. Yeah, in that, in that project, I mean, 20 years ago, I was doing lectures with architecture students, introducing them to Aboriginal um, concepts of place. And one of the things I'd say to the students is, you know, you need to respect that wherever you build and design in Australia, you, you're designing an Aboriginal country, whether it's a brownfield site or a greenfield site, it's all Aboriginal country. And at that point in time, um, 20 years ago, there wasn't a lot of, uh, I guess, um, clients pushing for inclus in, an in inclusive approach to Aboriginal concepts of place. Um, but that's changed now and it's been a long time coming. And, you know, 20 years later, we're seeing... Um, uh, government tenders, design tenders calling and um, demanding that level of engagement with Aboriginal communities and co-design processes, which is fantastic. Um, when we designed Sunshine Coast, that was in between that 20 years ago and now, and so the engagement process probably was a little bit constrained and, and wasn't as intensive as we would have liked, but there are a number of things that um, came out of that, and in terms of um, orientating the building uh, in, in relation to the coast and the hinterland, um, considering views to topographical features that we know are important to um, the Aboriginal community on the coast um, and uh, the ability to walk from one end of the hospital to the other uh, in an external environment. Um, so there's a range of those sort of um, clear sort of um, design responses. But then through the process, we found that there was a demand, it wasn't brief, but there was a demand or a need for an external space where large family groups could grieve and this had to be adjacent to the mortuary. And so we had to consider um, grieving practices um, for these large family groups and the kind of ceremonies that might occur around that. Um, and that's really interesting because we're now working on a, another health project in New South Wales where um, the grieving practices of many different cultural groups need to be considered um, within the hospital context as well. Yeah, great example. Claire, you're obviously from the UK originally. We can still hear a trace of an accent. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you'd like to reflect on how you've seen the evolution of, of this um, 
you know, value of the First Nations voice in our design process? Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental difference is probably in the time that I've been here, which is probably about 20-odd years now. So I think, um, I mean, we live in a state that has registered Aboriginal parties. That's a fundamental thing in terms of um, understanding who you're engaging with and your obligations for engagement. I think the fact that we're in a state that has is undertaking a treaty and truth-telling um, process is one of only a handful of states and territories in Australia that's doing that. So these are things that set the context for, the, for design. They're not um, design, you know, it's obviously not a design mechanism per se, but they're really fundamental in terms of the territories that we're designing in. I think the fact that, again, we are in a state that has, I think, was the first act that was in dual language, so the Rivers Act, so about, I guess, the fact that recognising that the Yarra River is a, a you know, a living entity and, and needs to be kept alive. So I think we've got all of these conditions that have changed in terms of legislative um, environments. I think um, also in the time, I guess as a segue to what you were talking about, Stephen, I've worked on um, the Bendigo Hospital project, which had um, some, could have had more, but had some um, good um, engagement, which was led to the design of Aboriginal Services Garden, which helped to close the gap and increase um, attendance at hospital, increase the number of people that were comfortable actually getting treatment. So I think there's those sorts of fundamental, I guess, things that can happen that are sort of legislative mechanisms, planning mechanisms, and then design mechanisms. I think even, I think in that health context, I guess even a biophilic design approach still has correlations with a connection or a caring for country approach. So I think we're starting to see change. I think, as you've said, there's a lot of change that is being demanded of projects in a good way through social procurement briefs, but I think that what we're probably um, failing to do well as, as various disciplines is um, I think we need to create more time. So deep listening takes time. Good consultation takes time. Um, we have so many projects now and there's limited capacity. So there is the sense from, I believe, from many elders around engagement fatigue. And, that, um, and I guess what we also need to really look at, I suppose, if I put my Australian Institute of Landscape um, Architects hat on is to actually start to encourage more First Nations students to study all of the design disciplines that are probably represented here tonight. Um, so I think there's a lot of improvements in terms of engagement. There's still a lot of education that needs to occur within the various design disciplines. Um, and I think that needs to then start to translate. I think there are still you know, there are definitely examples, um, I guess, when in particular you have things like the International Indigenous Design Charter when it's used and it's used properly. Um, and when you're having Indigenous-led engagement, I think you're seeing very different and tangible outcomes. I think too often um, engagement is left too late. It's not resourced properly and it's fast-tracked. And so I think, therefore, it's um, quite hollow. Uh, but I think it is, you know, seeing a lot more practices who have... <clears throat> Um, their own reconciliation action plans. And I think that's then, you know, I guess that in combination with the charter are giving us as designers mechanisms to design without the client having to bring that level of engagement or that requirement to the project. So I think that's making a massive difference. I think probably one of the, a really great example where things might start to shift is the um, City of Melbourne's procurement of the Green Line project, which I think has a really strong and understandably um, big emphasis on First Nations engagement and actually really transforming the city through a First Nations cultural knowledge perspective. So I think you'll start to see probably exponential change through that. But I think, yeah, I think there's a long way to go, but I think it's very um, encouraging to see how many 
Indigenous designers are on how much they are really starting to drive and demand different change in different processes. So, Yeah, I was thinking in a kind of converse way, we're talking about the new public, but actually our oldest peoples are kind of one of the facet of the new public. Um, so just shifting our thoughts a little bit, we had uh, a great comment from Emma Murphy on our um, post promoting tonight on LinkedIn. And Emma put forward the idea that the public have forgotten how to be social. I'm going to pose that question to you, Kate. Do you think we've, we've um, become less social? I don't, actually. I, I kind of disagree with that. I think, we're, I think it's a different kind of engagement. Um, and actually, we had a, a very funny team meeting uh, today to talk about, um, you know, we've been slow to get back to work because it's a hospital, so it's we've still been working from home. But just going through that whole process of, um, you know, when people have headphones on, just leave them alone because they're probably on a video call. You know, it's just those little things that... Um, but, but I don't think we've forgotten to be social. And I think if you think back to the pandemic, um, we were all so, uh, you know, we, we were surrounded by those loved ones at home, but when we got out, I don't know about you, but the dog park was a fantastic place to be. I was speaking to more strangers than I've ever spoken to before, and I think it's an, interest, it's an interesting sort of shift around, um, around who you're engaging with and how you're engaging, and I've just employed, you know, uh, or helped uh, to get employment for uh, my wonderful barista from the local cafe. I don't think I wouldn't have known as much about her as I've got to know about her over the past 12 months, this incredible person. So I'm not sure that we're less social. Um, less social maybe in wanting to run out and rush out and attend things, but I think we're social in a neighbourly way and in a much, much, hopefully with a bit more depth. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon in, in public spaces, though, isn't it? Because you're often alone or just with your group, but you have that sense of being alongside other people, which is so um, heartwarming in a way. I'm thinking of, you know, people that go to the football. I'm, you know, I'm not sure they strike... I don't go to the football, but I'm not sure you strike up conversations with the people next to you. Or have, you do. Oh, you do? Okay. <laughs> okay, bad example then. <laughs> um, but, you know, even... Popping to the gallery, for example, you know, do, would you have a conversation with a, a stranger there? Perhaps not. But, yeah, the dog park was definitely one that I thought of. And also the way that children socialise, you know, children, a trip to the playground is a potential new friend right there. Um, any thoughts on that topic, Claire? Um, yeah, I mean, I think for, again, from a landscape perspective, I think some of the parks that I saw were almost like being in Shanghai, like the amount of things that people were doing outside that they wouldn't have done, they would have done privately before. So I think for me, that was just, you know, obviously it was mandated really to do that. But I think, um, you know, I think if we can keep that up, if we can keep, you know, we know there are so many health values. So I suppose it's putting the public into public health. Public health is preventative. Public health isn't just about what we all do when we design hospitals. It's actually preventing isolation, loneliness, which we know leads to premature death. So I think what we saw was different forms of socialising, um, different group formations. Um, I think, obviously, 
Yeah, I think probably improving people's mental and physical health at times, albeit in this bigger context where we know that statistically people's mental health has been impacted. But yeah, I think I would like to see that continue. And I think that's where the design of those good quality spaces that are easy walking distance from your home are good, are important. And I think as people, if we're going to draw people back into the city, those sorts of communal spaces and shared spaces, a sense of belonging, a sense of place, a sense of um, a space that reflects back the community it's part of. So that's where, as you say, whether they're in the suburbs or the cities, those sorts of, that, that sort of deeper engagement in the design of our spaces will invite people in. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I think it's just hopefully going to see an exponential increase in investment in public infra green infrastructure as well. Obviously in um, Brisbane, we didn't have the same extent of lockdowns as you experienced here and also in New South Wales. But we did have the phenomenon of people taking themselves to the dog park and occasionally taking the dog with them as well. Um, and it was funny because you'd see people going to the dog park and just standing there and waiting for the opportunity to engage with the conversation. So, and I think that just reflects that we largely are kind of craving social interaction all the time. And it's not just social interaction, it's also about identity. There's a whole lot of aspects to it and, and we do crave it and um, and sometimes and yes the dog park people get to talk about their dog how's your dog blah 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 but we also really crave being around groups of people who are strangers and we'll never get to know them but being part of a large audience or a gathering a concert you know football whatever it is I think we do really crave that and so the design of um, spaces that support that support that interaction with large groups, but maybe at the same time being able to have your own space while being part of that large group is, is it's a really interesting challenge for us. Um, it's something that probably we haven't had to consider largely before, but um, it's, it's on everyone's mind sort of going forward, I think. What does the future hold for those large gathering spaces where, where we're, we're close to many, many people who will never know? And, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, if I can, Ruth, just respond to that. I think that's such a such an important thing. And I think if ever you want a sense of that, walk through the Latrobe reading room at the State Library because you have a whole lot of individuals there with individual pursuit, um, but part of a community. And I, I had a journalist who um, was writing about libraries and she began writing about, she was American, she began writing about libraries because she wanted to understand the Trump phenomenon. She just wanted to understand what was happening outside Washington where she and her husband um, were both journalists. And so she did a whole nationwide tour and she would absolutely do it through the lens of the library because you could go to the, a, a library and just see a range of different people. And she came to the State Library and um, she walked into that room and she said, but it's full of young people. like." what are they doing here? They could all be at home in warmer rooms, not sitting on 160-year-old chairs. And it was like I'd choreographed it because we were walking around the room and my 17-year-old niece was there. And I said, well, you can go and interview her. And, um, and she said, so why are you here? It's Sunday and what are you doing here? And she just looked up at that roof and said, why would you not be here? And everyone else is here for the same reason. And I thought, that's just so beautiful. You know, she was not going to speak to anyone that day, but she felt so part of a community. She didn't want to be in her bedroom. It's a great story. And I think, um, you know, working on the, um, on the library, there were so many great stories about people 
like a lot of um, marriages, you know, that when people I mean, meet yes. at the library. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think there's also something about the library, about a public space and, and um, the kind of spatial memory your body has. And I feel like a lot of people would go to the library when they had to knuckle down, you know, they'd get into the zone and that was where they, where they would go. But I'm thinking, um, you know, as, as designers, how do we predict or imprint those kind of spatial memories and the and it comes to your point Claire the these spaces that where rituals can happen different ways of programming the space to activate it um don't know if you've got an example of <laughs> of that well I would probably go back to the biophilic thing like if you I mean we've been doing some work on master plans that look to 2042 and I think the thing that has really sort of reaffirmed for me is, is that you'll have so much change, the need for so much flexibility, the need for so much adaptation, whether it's climate adaptation or programmatic adaptation. But the one thing that I guess, or two things maybe that COVID has shown us is that um, I guess that biophilic tendency is, that is our sort of innate human need um, or innate human affinity with nature. And I think that, you know, we can call it many things, whether it's country, whether it's nature, whether it's landscape, um, whether it's earth or sky, like there is something about that room that is quite biophilic in terms of its circle, its framing of light, the things that Stephen was talking um, about. And I think that need to be together. And so I think that's the thing that we will always return to. And I think the idea of COVID, what is inspiring about it is that it, we all acted not just in our own self-interest, we did something at scale globally for a common good. And that is very encouraging if you think about the need to adapt in terms of climate so that we can do this if we act together. Um, and I think being, you know, we know that if you're in those sorts of environments that actually increases empathy. And if you increase empathy, you're more likely to achieve collective action. So I think design is not the only way of doing that. Design is one way of encouraging that. So I think that's something to be very optimistic about. That's well said. Now, I've got one last question for the panel, but before I pose that question, I'm going to throw it to our esteemed audience to see if there are any questions from the floor. Um, there will be a microphone coming around because this is being recorded, but I hope um, I'm looking at Alex. I can depend on Alex for a question. <laughs> Just over here. Oh, sorry. Come. Thank you, and thanks, Ruth, and, and everyone for braving the cold, and lucky it's not raining. Um, it was just so fantastic hearing, particularly, Kate, I thought your comparison of being at the library and then at VCCC or Peter Mac. Sorry, I'm ex-UOM, so we always call it VCCC, sorry. But... Um, and I was just wondering in terms of, you know, you were talking about the dome of the library and that's such a fantastic kind of echo of the Roman, you know, essentially like a Roman um, uh, typology. And the VCCC has a very different, but that, um, that atrium space at the VCCC is very different, but very kind of poignant at the same time. And I was just wondering if you could expand on that in terms of how you see the difference between the public of the dome and the public of that atrium. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we did with the state library and particularly with the 
um, the, the user design principles, one of the things um, that was really evident was that it's a big, remarkable building and I think we are so lucky to have that forecourt where you've got people lazing in the sun and lying there, you know, eating their lunch. And, and I think if you think about other libraries or cultural institutions around the world, sometimes without that, it's a bit scary. You wouldn't have people, you know, walking in off the street. I loved the skateboarders at the front of the library because it just softened everything. It just made it a, a, a far more community-led. Um, and so one of the things that we did do is both at Russell Street and Swanson Street, we created a sense of a, a welcome zone so that you could walk in without immediately having to make a decision about where you needed to go and what you were doing. And if you didn't know, then you walked out again because we saw a lot of that when we were looking at what we needed. And I think it's exactly the same. I get the same sort of sense. When you walk into the library either end, it's just, it's kind of calming and it's okay if you don't quite know what you're doing and you can, you, you can find a seat immediately and it's welcoming. And I, I find exactly the same thing. Um, so when you walk into Peter Mac, it's big and beautiful, but there's something warm and welcoming too. Immediately you can see somewhere to sit. There are alcoves that you can go to. And I, I think it's the same sort of sense. So if you're walking into something that could be a little bit intimidating in both instances, um, if you don't have a history of, of the State Library, um, and certainly at Peter Mac, and I think that they've achieved, the designers and architects have achieved a really great thing in both spaces. All right, thanks, Kate. And we've got a question here at the front. Hi, if that's working. Um, yeah, really great discussion, you guys, and really enjoying it. I just had a really simple question about youth in public realm. I'm seeing there's lots of discussions about it and what your thoughts, and that would be, you touched on it earlier, but just to hear from everybody about that topic would be great. Do, do you want to start, Steve? Um, yeah, I was reflecting on um, youth in public realm when we, Ruth first talked to us about um, uh, coming here tonight, and... I was reflecting on my own kind of teenage years and what was the public realm that that I sort of and my friends um, occupied. It was a lot, a lot of the time it was streets and parks and beaches, and and so and why is that? You know, what what why were we there and, and not in other other spaces? And um, so I think it's it's an important consideration. What are the kinds of spaces that? Um, young people want to occupy and feel comfortable occupying. And what we um, listening to before was, a, you know, that sense of welcoming actually requires a level of generosity and, and ge generosity is also maybe code for, for investment as well. And generosity in the types of spaces um, that provide, that are soft and welcoming and encouraging. And so for young people, I think it's important that that's a consideration and it's not just you know, beaches and parks and streets are fun, but it's not just um, those sorts of public spaces. Can I add to that? Because I think I totally agree. And when I first got to the library, we just started this whole process. And um, and, and understandably, a lot of um, users of the State Library were concerned that we were no longer sort of a reference library and a quiet space. And 
but in the design we were trying to do more than that. And so I'd had quite a quite a, um, a very serious meeting with a group um, who were expressing their sort of concerns about the design um, and, and targeting sort of a broad cross-section. And then I came back to my desk and there was, uh, someone had sent me a video and it was a video I didn't know at the time, but it was uh, three world-renowned skateboarders who were skating at the, uh, the front of the museum and then came down to the library. They were skating around the library. There were a whole lot of people. There was an audience around them watching them because they were amazing. Um, one of them then, you know, I did do kind of some sort of stunt that was vaguely a little bit dangerous. So the security guard sort of shooed him on. And so the video ends with him pulling up his jeans and he has a, had a tattoo of the State Library um, sculpture on his leg and the other one pulled up his arm and had the state library, the, an actual, the actual library on his arm. And I just thought, isn't that fantastic? So I ended up finding them and um, only one of them had been inside the state library, but, it, but both of them loved the state library as much as the researchers who loved it for a different reason. That's gold, you know, that's just beautiful. And so we can design these buildings with one thing in mind and young people will just create a completely different interpretation of it. Yeah, and I, th and I think maybe the other thing to think about, I guess that's the other thing, that that's a very sort of informal appropriation of space and obviously is world famous and isn't planned for, so it's not designed and that is good. But I think there's also, I guess, the sort of category of youth is typically under-designed for in public realms, so it's definitely a gap. But then I think we have to unpack what youth means. So I think if you're you know, depending on your gender, depending on your ethnicity. So I think that what we need to also look at is, I guess, when we've been working on um, the development of an urban design toolkit for gender-sensitive um, design, and that means the full diversity of um, the community and vulnerable communities as well. And I think that when we associate a lot of the spaces that you've described um, can be, I mean, the beach is a place where people self-aggregate less, which is really interesting, the same as promenades and certain conditions. But I think if you start to design very active spaces, you will actually exclude girls at a young age that they'll never be present as a youth, <laughs> for example. So I think we really need to understand how we're designing the spaces pr prior to designing youth-engaged spaces so that we then get those spaces right and we actually um, balance out participation because there's a massive inequity when you do end up with those spaces that they are heavily programmed, they are more active, they then exclude various people and not just women and young girls. And then I guess there's a whole safety kind of perspective on top of that as well. And I think there, there are also um, institutions like Queensland Art Gallery, for example, they're really tackling that question and, and considering how they can um, redesign some of their existing gallery spaces um, to create spaces that are more engaging, um, give young people a sense that they can occupy the space for however long they want to be there, um, a bit like how the State Library um, works. So there are, I think there are public institutions and organisations that are aware of that need and, and, and starting to tackle um, that through design. Great. Alex, just let me see if there's someone else other than you with a question. <laughs> Richard. Richard's first. <laughs> Just at the front here. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Um, no, fantastic conversation. Um, and I think 
what we've probably established is the definition of public space is really quite broad. Um, I was interested in your view on what the private sector, what role the private sector has in this whole discussion. And I guess I think about the city, for example, there's actually some really interesting spaces that aren't necessarily public spaces by definition, but they're incredibly uh, popular with, with the people, with, with the public. Um, I remember reading <coughs> an architectural critic that talked about Collins Place as being one of his favourite places in the city. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, particularly in the winter, it's actually quite a, a, an inviting space. So I think my view is the private sector does have a view in all this, but interested in your thoughts on that. Happy Claire? to give that a bit of a crack. Maybe just to sort of take a slight segue with the question as well. I guess we've um, one thing I'm interested in is the idea of public not just being for people. So I think if we consider that we design for humans and non-humans or more than humans. Um, so I think we did a piece of work with Arup and some other consultants for the C376 planning amendment for the city of Melbourne. And the basis of that was really a feasibility. So it was a feasibility study that was globally benchmarked. But really what it was trying to do as part of the... Green Our City, I think it's called a Green Our City Action Plan, is to really leverage the value of private development for public benefit. And I think one way of looking at that is that I guess, you know, we're in a state that's made a climate, some sort of climate and biodiversity commitments. The City of Melbourne has made those commitments. Um, the City of Melbourne and the University of Melbourne and RMIT are some of those bigger asset owners. So no, no one of them can do it alone. So the city has really decided to try and lead by mandating green infrastructure targets. And I think that's a really good way of understanding that public is a systems approach. Like it's not a human approach, it's ecological, it's cultural. So I think by looking at the way that, I guess, those sorts of legislative changes can actually mandate the contributions as opposed to what's happened is I think a lot of that's been left to the discretion of developers. And we do a lot of work with developers and obviously you get good developers and bad developers. So I think, um, I think having mechanisms that mandate it and then I think what we'll also see is where we're seeing changes in the type of development as a result of COVID, where we're going to start to see people moving into the city who may be from a lower socioeconomic background. So we're gonna to start to see shifts yeah, um, which I think will then bring up, bring different forms of value um, to the city as well. So I think there's, yeah, I think there's lots of good examples of that. But I think there's also the politics of that as well. So I think I've certainly written articles on um, the idea of, yeah, the privately owned and operated public spaces. So I think that's where you need to have things like charters. So I think, um, I think the City of London's done quite a lot of good work on that in terms of how you can make privately owned and operated spaces feel public and the obligations of developers to do that. And I would quite like to see something like that um, occur in Melbourne, actually. I think a, a lot of people would consider someone, somewhere like Chadston a public space. You know, it, it is where people go to hang out and do other things other than what the building is programmed to do. Steve or Kate, would you like to add to that or we'll go to Alex's question? <laughs> the only thing I would say, though, the true definitions around public space charters, um, as in like the sort of the charter or kind of rights of, of, to public space, is that it's free. And I think that's where putting aside the institutional issues around um, libraries, I think that's, for me, that's really fundamental that you can visit that place without having to spend money. You can argue about how you get there and the proximity as well, but I think that's really fundamental in the sort of rights, the global rights for public space. Yeah, and it's free for everyone. 
and anyone. I think that's a key, a key component of it. Okay, last question. Sorry, sorry, Ruth. I, I just, just such a great panel, and I've got so many questions. But um, and I think um, certainly you were starting to talk about something that has been a concern of mine, particularly during COVID, where um, I guess the tactical urbanism kind of um, strategies of like the 1970s where, you know, parklets and taking over streets and whatnot with, um, you know, food and beverage and, and that's been fantastic in terms of high streets and high street activation. But again, to get to your point, it was, it, it's, it's a pay-to-play environment and so, in terms of what you and Steve were talking about, how do we actually then, um, you know, during COVID, we, we did move more to that, um, that kind of activation, which on the one hand is fabulous, but on the other hand implies, well, if you don't have money to purchase whatever it is, then you can't occupy public space and you can't dwell. And, you know, by contrast, the State Library, which was set up originally in the 19th century, deliberately for people to dwell who didn't have money, who didn't meet the dress code, who didn't, um, you know, meet those kind of norms of the 19th century. And now we've kind of, you know, are we going backwards? Question mark. So the coffee tax, you've got to pay for a cup of coffee to, to be in a nice place. Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I, yeah, totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, I think in some ways, though, we've replaced, I guess you could argue that you've created the parklets which have taken away parking, which has obviously had a revenue link to the city. So, and I think people were paying for the parking. So maybe that's in the parklet example, it's not a total disaster. But I think, I mean, I think this is where um, there are cities like, you know, Brisbane that have bought back land from um, private development for public space. So I think... Probably, I mean, streets are part of our public open space network. They are obviously free to, to traverse. I think then it becomes about having more equitable streets and more equitably distributed public open spaces. I think having a diversity. So I think what we end up with is often very small aggregated spaces that have no distinction in terms of their purpose or their relevance to the community that they're located in. So if you start to, I guess get this sort of network approach where you are leveraging private and public um, land. So I think, I mean, even maybe with um, Collins Arch that we worked on, that's like, a, I think, a $1.4 billion project. And there's, you know, a bit of controversy about perhaps the um, change of the plaza to the park. But that basically gave back, I think, in total, the conversion of the road is probably 1,500 square metres of roadway. It's um, partly on private title, partly on public title. All of the roadway of the park is public title. It was designed to the City of Melbourne's brief. It's maintained by the City of Melbourne. So it's fully public. And then there's a whole section that is weather protected, that's timber, that is designed in a way that the City of Melbourne wouldn't support in probably that part of the city. So that's a whole, I guess, precinct approach to um, being able to create maximum public benefit where you technically don't have to spend anything. And I guess that sort of interesting thing of trying to use the language of the city in terms of their materials to spill into the development. So you blur the boundary, which you could argue the 
you know, is a good and a bad thing. Um, but I think, yeah, the more that we have, I think, contributions made by developments that create pockets of public space that is, yeah, that doesn't create these sort of um, gentrified areas where people don't feel like they belong, I think that's pretty key. Yeah, I think, I think that notion that you're talking about of this um, network of public space or, or web or, or interwoven um, public space is really important and I guess the opposite of that is islands of public space or isolated monu monuments, you know, build public buildings that are isolated monuments and what you're talking about is this thread or network through the, through the city. I think we're going to have to wrap up and I have one last question. So I'm going to, um, and those who know me know I do this often, we're going to fast forward 10 years. Uh, so Melbourne Metro is complete. We've got a huge new gallery just over there um, where cashless, driverless, I'm going to say perhaps genderless, we've deepened our knowledge and respect for our First Nations peoples. And so my question is, will we see any imprint or any trace of these last two pandemic years in the design of our public places and spaces? Who wants to go first? Well, obviously, I'd like to see my new vision um, delivered of this network. So I think probably, yeah, that I'd like to see this equitable distribution of high-quality public realm that supports all of the activities, public realm being buildings and architecture in this context, that supports all of the things that we've just spoken about. Like, that is something that transcends technology. It's something that we all need, and I think it will um, continue to be relevant whilst everything else changes. Um, in in uh, 10 years' time, my kids are going to be 22 and 24, and this year... During the Brisbane floods, they said, Dad, it's flooding, we've got COVID, the school's flooded, you know, everyone's dropping like flies with COVID at school, and there's a war in Europe, you know, is this the start of the apocalypse? Come on, Dad, what's happening? Of course, I was very positive, no, it's all, everything's going to be fine. Um, but I think it, this era is going to have an imprint on those young people, and I think in 10 years' time, you're going to have 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds who are really demanding about the type of public that we have and the type of public spaces that we have and they're going to be demanding as decision makers. So you imagine late 20s, early 30 decision makers and designers. And so hopefully that's a positive thing, but I, I really get the sense that they've had this experience and when they uh, have the opportunity to create the world, that they're going to um, change it in a very positive way. Yeah, I think it's a really good point because I also think uh, an element of that, I, you know, my, my um, children in 10 years' time will be 30 and, uh, and 25 um, and 18. And I think they're going to be much more demanding about um, the work-life sort of pattern. I think they're going to want to work whenever, wherever, including in public spaces. And, and I think they are going to be creative and demanding and I think they're going to be great problem solvers. So the more we kind of tap into that now, the better in terms of public design. Well, thank you for those positive views of the future. Sounds great. Can't wait. Um, 
Let's wrap it up. I want a uh, big vote of thanks for Kate, Claire and Steve. Thanks for joining us tonight and for a great discussion. You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.